Hey everybody, how's it going? Thanks for joining me this afternoon. I've got a great stream with a great guest that I think you're really going to enjoy. So something that I try to talk about all the time on this show is the importance of patronage. It's something that the left understands their people benefit, they get paid, right? When the left does something, they make sure that everybody gets a little bit of the pie and they have so many loyal supporters because of that. Conservatives, we want small government. We don't want government involvement. So we're very scared of this patronage idea because that's not what you're supposed to do, right? You're supposed to keep the government small. You're supposed to keep the payments low, keep the corruption out. We shouldn't be doing any of this. But at the same time, the left keeps winning and the right keeps losing. So I've been trying to explain along with a couple other people like the good old boys about how important patronage is. However, my guest today, Jay Byrne, wrote a great essay about the people who get something that's not material. Why are people who get no payment, get no material benefit, still supporting the left? He wrote a great essay on this, and I wanted to talk to him about it. So, Jay, thanks for coming on, man. Yeah, thank you for having me on again, Aaron. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So a lot of people who have watched this are probably familiar, but it never hurts to go over the basics. Let's explain to people real quick, what is the traditional meaning of patronage and why is it so critical that the right start to grasp this as a fundamental building block of political power? Yeah. So patronage is kind of one of the core ideas of political realism. And to, to reframe, you know, Schmidt, it's the idea that, you know, the function of politics is to reward your friends and punish your enemies. And that's what patronage is, rewarding your friends. So it's, it's kind of easiest to go back to the Roman world for this because this is still present, right? It's kind of a function of how humans organize themselves, but they're a lot less subtle than we are. And so the Romans, you know, if you wanted to vote, they'd say like, all right, well, if you vote for me, uh, I'll give you a lot of money. And so they just buy votes directly. It's very, very direct. And that still exists in our current system, obviously. You know, there are certain programs that are only available to kind of clients of the Democrat regime. You know, in some cases, they will just create jobs for their sinecures, even in the corporate world. I mean, that's effectively what HR is. And so what they do is they basically create a class of people who not only need rewards, like a positive thing, but depend on Democrats being in power for their employment. And so that creates a really strong bond between the people in power and their supporters. And, you know, like you've said before, a lot of conservatives kind of bristle at this idea. You know, it's a little bit gross. I don't want to do that. Uh, but the problem is it doesn't really matter if you like it or not. It simply is. It's on the same level of, you know, a force like gravity. It is kind of just how things are. And if you don't understand it, you're you're not playing the game as it is. You're playing the game as you'd like it to be. And I think that's one of the reasons why conservatives have such a hard time winning the game that is politics. Yeah, and, and that's why political realism is so important. I think that's why a lot of people listen to people like you and me and, and others in our sphere is we're describing the system as it actually works. Like I just uh, spoke with a distributist about, you know, that the system is what it does. We talk about what the system actually does as opposed to the ideal that we would like it to do. And the problem is that a lot of what has been passed on as conservative values or conservative principles are direct denials of the system. We all know that one of the reasons that communism failed is that it ignored realities about human nature, right? The incentives, the way that things line up, 
when the state is just distributing things instead of giving people a profit motive and a reason to to have their own interest in what they're producing it creates all these issues and we laugh you know people on the right oh how these how could these silly communists not understand this part of human nature but patronage is also a core part of human nature. It is just as real as the profit motive. It's just as real as gravity, as you talked about, is what politics is. And that's why it's ancient. That's why we you know, the, the patronage can go all the way back to the patron in, in Rome. And we can, we can obviously identify that political relationship. And so we can hate that. We can say that we, you know, we should be above that. We should use our reason and our independence to, we can, we can make all of these excuses as to why we shouldn't engage in it, but that doesn't stop your opponent from noticing that when you drop something, gravity carries it to the ground, right? And that, that's just an obvious fact. And if they're the one who is observing that fact and playing inside that reality and you're denying it, you're just going to lose. And so uh, one of the things that we have done is, is really explain the necessity of the right to break down opposing patronage networks you know things like say the educational system which as you pointed out provides millions of jobs the educational system in many areas in for my in, in my area for instance is one of the two top employers in the entire area because of the amount of gov- government subsidies that flow through it that's an incredible amount of power that's an incredible amount of people who are completely dependent on the leftist apparatus and ideology and the, and the Democrats staying in power for them to continue to get paid and, and continue to benefit in the way that they want. And th- those benefits are critical. However, as you pointed out in your piece, there are a lot of people who don't get these direct benefits. We can think of many groups that do. We can think of many examples where there is a direct payment of benefits however there are many that don't and yet they still go ahead and support the regime very fervently and so we want to have an understanding of why they do that and you came up with a a, this uh terminology social emotional patronage which i thought was really helpful to explain that so could you explain a little bit about what social emotional patronage does as opposed to the kind of the material classic direct payment patronage that we are now familiar with? Certainly. And I I came to this realization. And when I say realization, other people have expressed ideas like this. And I sort of borrowed it from the economic concept of utility, which basically, and I'm boiling it down to the, you know, like a, a thumbnail version of that is that people have sort of subjective value to things you can't really calculate. Right. And so that's where I sort of got thinking like, well, okay, like, well, people tend to act in their own perceived best interest. You know, very few people, you know, walk in front of trains for no reason, you know, or burn all their money in a, in a trash fire. But there are people like, and specifically, you know, millennials, single women who are very, very strongly connected to the regime. They're strongly democratic bases, but these people are miserable, right? Many of them are not making very good money. You know, they have, they're saddled with incredible amounts of debt. And yet, despite all these things, which from a purely just like, you know, economic background, you'd say, oh, they should, they should be very dissatisfied with power. They're not. They're strongly aligned to the DNC regime. And so from looking at that, I was like, okay, well, there must be something there. You know, there must be some reason. And so from looking at that, at that perspective of utility, where it is subjective value, I sort of started to realize that the deal offered by the regime isn't monetary, it isn't physical. 
it's it's social and emotional. It's that it's getting to feel like, oh, I am better. You know, I am high status. I am a good person. And you referenced your discussion with the distributist, and and he's very good about talking about the kind of current culture war as a war of belief, a war between fundamentally incompatible views of reality, what is good and evil. And part of that is that, you know, for both sides, there's a certain point where it is a religious commitment, you know, where you're making a sort of assumption of faith. And looking at these people, the rewards that they're given are are sort of not earthly rewards. You know, it's this feeling that you are kind of a, you know, a saint of this secular religion. And that's the high-minded way to look at it. I think another way to look at it is effectively, they just really hate the chuds and they really hate their parents. They really hate middle America. And this is them getting to be better than their parents. You know, oh, you know, grandma still says colored. She's so racist. I now use the big brain, you know, very approved regime term, people of color, and that makes me better. And so I think that that sort of, especially for these more middle-class types who are very, very conscious of status, I think is a strong reason they support the regime, even when it's not in their literal best interest from a dollars and cents perspective. Yeah, I think that's so important because, again, while conservatives may not be comfortable with the idea of patronage, yeah, they, they can, might feel like it moves against some of their principles. They still understand the benefit. They still understand that somewhere someone is cashing a check and getting a nice TV or something out of it, right? So they, they can grasp that concept. But I think in the United States especially, it's hard for people to think about social status. It's something that we like to, you know, we like to look at the nuts and the bolts. And we say, oh, well, the, the reasoning of this, I added up the numbers, it doesn't make sense. So this just isn't a factor. But the truth is that humans are primarily, uh, you know, political animals. They're, they're, they're uh, primarily uh, social animals. And so while the, you know, the, the ones and zeros in your bank account matter, what you really notice is the approval or disapproval of those around you. You're, you have a very keen and developed sense when you walk in a room of like where you stand in a pecking order. Am I, am I at the lowest rung? Am I in the highest rung? Where do I need to set myself? As soon as you enter into a situation, your radar for this goes off, whether you realize it or not. But we don't think about that when we think about politics. You know, we think about, oh, well, the, this policy checks all the boxes that I learned about that make me right or left wing, or it, maybe it even materially benefits me one way or another. But we rarely, but we very rarely think, oh, this will elevate my status. This will help me climb a social hierarchy. When in fact, that is one of the highest motivating factors we have in almost any interaction not so much material acquisition. Well, well, certainly. And I think that this, a failure to recognize this kind of hamstrings the right's ability to analyze the left. Because it's really easy to look at, you know, the kind of Antifa mugshots of these kind of like spiteful mutants, these like true freaks, you know, and they have, you know, facial tattoos and dyed hair and, you know, a, a rap sheet a mile long. And you can kind of understand why those people want to burn down a police precinct. Right. Like that, that kind of makes sense. You know, they don't like the police. They probably don't have the most well-adjusted social skills. So that, that kind of tracks. But what doesn't make sense is, well, okay, why are the people three lines behind them laptop workers? You know, why is, you know, why are the, you know, the moms in yellow marching with Antifa who by everything I've read 
are just, you know, progressive mothers and grandmothers, right? They don't have anything aligned. But what those people are picking up on is what makes them appear good and noble to their peers. And that kind of that kind of attention economy, that social economy, much like patronage, is built into humans. There's nothing we can do about that. But the problem is that it's been distorted towards evil ends. So I use this example quite often. At the center of my town is a statue to a 19th century doctor, right? There's a whole neighborhood named after him. And the reason that that man was exalted, right, that he was given a lot of social status is that he gave up his private practice, started a free clinic for the community, right? It was a noble thing to do. And for that, he probably lost money. I'm not exactly familiar with his bookkeeping, but normally a free hospital isn't exactly a great moneymaker, but he was rewarded massively from a social perspective, right? He's, you know, got a, a bronze statue, a whole area named after him. And, you know, now generations later, his name is still known. And that's a very good thing, right? You're motivating someone who is ambitious, who's a high achiever to do things for the benefit of everyone instead of just for him, right? So that's normally a, a good and functional part of civilization. We've always done that. But because our elites are horribly corrupt and elites control that system of status, the whole status hierarchy is tilted towards terrible ends. And that's where you see people who are on paper, relatively normal, signaling support of defunding the police, you know, all of these things that if we're being really honest, don't serve their direct interest at all. This is again, so critical because the mistake that was made so often on the right is uh, the accusation of virtue signaling. Oh, look, these people are just virtue signaling. They're virtue signaling. And, and that's that's not real. You should be an individual. You shouldn't care about what other people think. But that's ridiculous. People always care about what other people think. And you should want people to signal that they are virtuous. What you want is for them to signal the correct types of virtue. And then this puts, you know, basically what a lot of these kind of burnt out, you know, the leftists who got, they couldn't tell the same dirty jokes they used to. They, they were tired of getting canceled as comedians or something. Uh, would team up with conservatives and they would point and laugh and say, oh, they're just like the Christian conservatives of old who, who, you know, who warned you about stuff. And now they're the censorious ones and we're the free thinkers. And it's like, no, 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 you got this wrong. The the Christians in the eighties were right about everything. They correctly predicted all of it. And you you don't grasp what happened. The social status was used against them to defeat them in this. And now these people are virtue signaling because they are the dominant social hierarchy that everyone is virtue signaling against you because you have failed to, you know, to maintain your level of social status. And so you don't actually want to shift away from this mindset. You don't want to say, oh, well, we're just not going to notice social hierarchies. We're not just not going to notice virtue signalers or status. You, you want to be the ones that define what that is in a positive way. You're never getting rid of this human instinct. The idea that you could just, you know, cringe somebody out of this, that worked for the left because they replaced their value, your, your value status with their own. It's not working for you because you are trying to pretend that it doesn't even exist. But of course it does. Well, and that's one of the, the kind of fundamental disagreements that I think we would have with the more IDW types is viewing that there can be a sort of neutral, you know, kind of null hypothesis of morality, which is centered somewhere in the 1990s. 
And the idea is that that's when we achieved a truly neutral state where there was no civic religion. There was no overbearing, you know, moralistic faith ruling everything, which is very clearly not true. If you're if you're up to date on your right wing history, you'll be familiar with the fact that effectively the whole 90s was the state being weaponized against essentially random kooks in the woods for no good reason. You know, this is even referenced in Sam Francis's essay, Anarcho-Tyranny, when he talks about, well, what is, who does the state go after? Admittedly, this was written 20 some odd years ago, so it's kind of a time capsule. But he talks about, you know, people we may not like, but people like, you know, Randy Weaver, who, I mean, wasn't really doing anything that bad, not worth what he got. But all through that, we see that there still is this overbearing social religion that has friends and enemies. There, there is no sense of neutrality in that, and it's pure revisionist history to suggest that there was ever this period where everyone was seen as kind of a neutral actor. And so my point in that is not to complain about things that happened 30 years ago, but it's to say that you don't want, you don't need to fall for that rhetorical trap. This is much like patronage, something built into humanity. And no matter the era, no matter the society, you will find this exact same thing in motion. So another thing that you point out that I thought was really critical in the essay was the idea of the striver. I've seen this so many times. As you said uh, pre earlier, you have all these people who want to cancel their own grandparent, right? That I'm, I'm better than them. I'm higher than them. I'm elevated. Why? Because I believe, you know, in, in this jargon, I, I am aligned with the values of the regime. And it's, it's really important for people to understand where that comes from, because uh, again, a, a thing that conservatives love to do is they look at the, the, say the barista, right. Who's got her degree in intersectional feminism. And she thinks that she is more socially elevated than the plumber who makes $200,000 a year. And the conservatives, this does, just doesn't make sense to them because for them, class is tied to money. Money and class are the same thing. I'm middle class because I make so much money. I, I'm upper middle class because I make so much money. You'll notice everyone's middle class or upper middle class. No one's ever lower or, or high class. But they, uh, but you know, they always put themselves somewhere in this because of the amount of money they make. However, the Starbucks barista is very sure that she has done something that elevates her above the plumber, no matter how much money the plumber makes. And if she's angry at the system at all, it's only because she was not given the material benefits that should go along with her ascension to kind of the ruling class. She acquired the degree. She went to the college. She took the vow to, to kind of follow these people. And the thing that the regime does is they just kind of point to the plumber and says, well, that's his fault. He did that to you, right? And so they feel the need to elevate them above above themselves. And I've noticed specifically this the most with people who grew up in, say, like a middle class or a lower middle class existence, but they had a lot of contact with upper middle class or upper class people. And there's there becomes this hunger to to, oh, well, my parents, you know, were sending me to, I don't know, you know, bowling camp or something while they were getting to go to, you know, to Europe in the summer. And I can only achieve that by climbing classes, but I'm not going to make more money. I'm going to move up the status ladder by acquiring these opinions. And the, and so they, you know, you see this drive to look down at their family who didn't give them the, the upper middle class or upper class upbringing that they deserve, the lifestyle they deserve. And they're going through the rituals that should help them ascend to this next status class. 
even though it may not come with kind of that monetary reward. And so I think there's a lot of confusion among uh, conservatives as to where this you know, interplay comes from. But I think it really is that that failure of Americans to understand that class is something that is separate from money and not understand and why so many people who were born into maybe conservative middle class households are resentful of them and trying to use kind of the regime's political beliefs to elevate themselves out of what they see as something that was beneath them. Well, certainly. And let's start out with that first premise that money and class aren't the same. I think that kind of on first expect or first, you know, contact people will look at that a little bit. You know, they'll find something objectionable there. But you see this very clearly when you look at two groups of people. Uh, rich conservatives, like let's take the my pillow guy, for example. I don't remember his name, but that guy, right? He makes more money than I likely ever will in my entire life. He's a very wealthy man. But is he an elite, right? Is he part of the upper class? I would say no. He, he's not getting invited to speak at Harvard. He he doesn't have, you know, the kind of connections that our elite ruling class does. And there are many people in that elite, uh, particularly artists or activists, who don't make all that much money, right? I mean, they're not starving, but they're certainly not making deep into the six figures. But there's a class difference between those two. And basically that comes down to, do you support the regime or not? And so you see that very clearly in kind of what are kind of the, the luxury beliefs, right? This is a term that's been around conservative circles for quite some time. I really like it, which is there's this kind of trickle down effect where an idea is cool and high status. And, you know, there's this kind of continual attempt to, oh, I want to be like that. I want to be like the rich, famous guy. So I will copy that. So you see this very clearly with uh, gender and sexuality, right? You know that the I have friends who are on dating apps. I've said before I'm in my early 20s, and all of them just talk about how much of a wasteland it is because many of these kind of boutique gender ideologies that were popularized at you know at Ivy's in the kind of like halls of power, but never really acted out. You know these these were bored rich girls who shaved their hair and then six years later they're married with a kid, right? They don't act it out in the same way that someone further down the social status when they when that idea trickles down right? They actually go for it. And so you see this kind of like gradual move over time where the people at the top want to keep differentiating themselves. You know, they don't want to be too much like the stinky proles. So they'll innovate, they'll come up with something new. And so there's this kind of gradual march where everyone is trying to copy someone up the line. So the example I use in my article is sushi, right? Back in the eighties, this was like a very like out there cosmopolitan thing. So much so that in the breakfast club, it's this joke that, oh, the rich girl is rich because she eats sushi. I mean, now I don't live in a particularly big city, but there's like 25 restaurants that serve sushi and it's- You can really get it cheap. at a gas station. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's so much so that gas station sushi has been a joke my entire life. And so the point is, that's where you see a luxury good, which luxury goods and luxury ideas are, there's a similar structure there, trickle down the, down the scale. So talking about class and money not being the same, you see this in history as well. In the pre-revolution France, right, there was this decision between kind of sword nobility and the nouveau riche. The idea is, oh, we are, even if we're less wealthy, we, the sword, have a title descendant from knights. So we're better than these kind of merchants who may be rich, but aren't as kind of 
They're, they're newly arrived in wealth. They don't have the same kind of signifiers that we do. You see this again in, in, uh, uh, you know, Italy when it was being, uh, when it was being unified, right. In the, in, uh, Lampedusa's book, the leopard, there's this distinction between the old nobility and the merchants. And so that's something again, like all of these things that are kind of built into how humans organize themselves. It's just something now that we've sort of deluded ourselves that this doesn't, this doesn't occur. Yeah. And that's, the the something that again i don't think conservatives often understand is the need to constantly di differentiate why is the revolution always accelerating well one of the reasons there are many reasons but one of them is that there always needs to be a new language of the upper class with which to confound the lower class right you need to switch the codes you need to find a a, a slight differentiation so oh yeah you might have finally come around on gay marriage you backwards you know whatever but but i mean are you up for trans kids have you have you have you shown your loyalty that way there's always a different differentiation that you can engage in to separate yourself this is also uh why wokeness is very useful as an interclass warfare mechanism uh unfortunately our nobility has nothing to do with swordsmanship at this point and so rather than fight duels the way that they get rid of each other the way that they cancel their enemies is by outlefting each other it's why one of the reasons cthulhu always swims to the left because that's the uh, direction of social status you use that cancellation in order to uh, kind of win over your opponent if you've got a rival at the office you're both vying for a job but you can you know go ahead and show your that you know you, you have additional support for different communities or you yourself have suddenly developed an amazing affinity for non-binary queer gender theory or whatever then you could you could surpass somebody who has the same qualifications as you this is a tale as old as time. It's nothing particular to our current moment. It's just the weirdness of ours is more abstracted because we are so farther away from what a traditional nobility would, a traditional upper class would do. In fact, I think, again, in many ways, that's why there's this weird dissociation for so much of, of conservatives, because even if they can't sense class the way that you could in maybe other societies, like the English are not confused about the difference between money and class like they understand that those are very distinct things uh but that you know in america we're, we're still uh, very confused on that point because we never had that same aristocratic separation we never went through a period the, the citizen was always the soldier the you know the, there was never a moment in which we kind of had that feudal nobility protecting the land and and uh, you know forming the core of the the military through knight uh, knighthood or something like that and so because of that, I think it's just very difficult to, for us because we we never had that uh, that direct connection. Our elites have almost always been in some way or another a merchant class. Well, well certainly. And I think one of the, the things that trips people up is they look at what leftists say about themselves. And leftists will describe themselves as, you know, David fighting Goliath, the eternal rebel, you know, it's always the, the plucky underdog, you know, the rebels from Star Wars. Uh, but one of the interesting things about the regime, about the system as it is, and this is something that both, you know, Jacques Ellul and Kaczynski identify, is that there's sort of this built-in mechanism to take that instinct to rebellion and fold it back in to the system, you know, as it stands. And that's sort of the interesting thing about that, that process of gradually increasing leftism right? That you get to say, oh, we're ousting the elite. You know, we're getting the, rid of those racists who are keeping me from, you know, actualizing the, the sort of 
the things I deserve as a member of this new class, right? These people who use the right words, who are, you know, more loyal to this ideology. It lets you do that, but you're not actually challenging the regime, right? You're sort of pushing through an open door in a way that they are very comfortable with. And so imagine for, for instance, right, that you are the elite, you control, and I realize there's not like some smoky boardroom, but you know, bear with me here. What would you signal as high status? Like what would be the thing that if you could decide would be, you know, things people wanted to emulate? Well, it's obedience to the regime, right? So what we're seeing now is, you know, the, the past week, you know, leftists have been sort of trying to outdo each other in describing all the creative ways they'd like to put, like they'd like to punish Texans, you know, and red staters who maybe want, you know, Greg Abbott to have a certain say on what happens in his state. Right. You know, posting the, you know, this is, this is, you know, Sherman will ride again, you know, we'll, we'll nuke them, we'll bomb them. Right. And these are people who describe themselves as, you know, anarchist, socialist, very edgy people who, you know, are really fighting the system. But what does that mean to them? Well, that means the entire might of the U.S. government should be used to smoke, to smite my enemies, you know, and we can laugh at that contradiction, but you have to understand it that they are, they are doing exactly what they're supposed to. They're not in any way a threat to power. They're just signaling for, you know, those kind of social emotional rewards of getting to feel like they are, you know, extra good and extra special. It's the, uh, it's the communist who's demanding a more extreme version of the current revolution. They're not actually doing anything brave. In fact, they're reinforcing uh, and furthering uh, the regime. Uh, but but they get to act as if they're destroying some institutional enemy, uh, be, and and that gives them that that bonus. Well, well, certainly. And my entire life, something that I've heard from older people, and I understand what they mean, but they were fundamentally wrong. Is oh well, once these people get out in the real world and they see that it doesn't work, they'll become conservative because that's what happened to me. And certainly that happens for some people. I'm not trying to deny the reality of converts, but it comes from, I believe, mistaken reasoning. And that reasoning is that people make their political affiliations off of strict economic reality. Like what is better for me? And some people do that. I think that's an especially strong kind of current on the conservative right, the kind of chamber of commerce Republicans. But we've got to realize our opponents don't think like we do. They don't act the same way we do. And they are not making a rational choice in that way. They are, they're essentially religious extremists. You know, you should view them almost as, you know, crusaders or jihadis, you know, they are fully sold an idea. And so as this, this kind of system seems to be fraying at the edges, you know, their ability to kind of make direct payments either decreases or they have to kind of make some, some tight, you know, some cuts. They can't necessarily pay out the same way they do. People are, have said, you know, oh, this is good. You know, they'll come over to us. We can offer them a better deal. And that's not true because they're not in it. At least these people I'm talking about, they're not in it for a payment. They're in it because for them, that social status is worth more than money. They'd rather be high class than rich. And what I think we'll see is until that ability to dictate hierarchy, until that ability to dictate what is considered high class or what is considered cool, the right won't be able to get those people over. Well, and we see this uh, you know, a couple episodes ago, you were on and we talked about different Republicans or conservative leaders who would betray the movement for the status the left would give them. 
and this always confuses you know why 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 are david french or rod or other people why are they genuflecting before this this uh aspect of the regime's uh morality why are they why are they paying service to this when they're supposed to be on our side when they're supposed to identify with us when the, the, if it, their social hierarchy should be different, right? We're we're in a different team. We've got a different moral vision. Uh, they should be seeking to uh, to elevate themselves within our system and not look for the approval of others. And yet, over and over again, we see that conservative leaders do exactly the opposite. They, they you know they kind of fall apart as soon as their status might be uh, might be challenged by the left. They make sure that they uh, kind of fall over themselves. Anytime they might be accused of certain heresies, uh, and the reason, you know, even though their their own base probably wouldn't care or might even be excited that they would, you know, that they would say that kind of thing, and the reason is that even though they're a, they're theoretically on the side of the right, even though they're supposed to be representing conservatives, they are still people who want to see themselves as high class. They want to go to the right parties. They want to make sure that they get nice articles in the New York Times. And those are the people that actually confer the status to them. The, their socioeconomic position, or even not even socioeconomic, because we're rec- recognizing that that's not even the key factor, but their position in standing in class is one that is entirely dictated by the left. Only the left can, can hand out the class in which they want to exist, they want to uh, attain. And so they are constantly feeding that monster. And that's one of the reasons a lot of people reacted the way that they did to Donald Trump, because Donald Trump is very clearly at some level an elite. He, 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 was, he was maybe a new money guy. Maybe he didn't fit in with some of the elite, but he clearly, you know, he was friends with lots of celebrities before he ran for president as a Republican. Everybody loved him. Oprah loved him. Like all these leftists loved him. So he had broken into at least in some way, the elite levels, just despite maybe being new money or, or gauche in certain ways. And when he crashed out of that by, you know, telling the right, what they wanted to hear, telling what conservatives, what they really wanted to hear, the things they had always wanted to hear from their leadership. That's why he acquired a level of loyalty that many conservative pundits and, and, you know, uh, operatives and these things still don't understand. They still don't get that. It was his willingness to counter signal his own class and his willingness to appeal so blatantly in a way that conservative leaders never do to the actual wants of the party to elevate himself inside their status is, is really, I think, what solidified so much support behind him. Well, definitely. And as you can probably tell from my avatar and my general disposition, I'm not one for for white pills. But I will say, I think that the recent developments at the the Texas border have been interesting, because what I think we're we might potentially be seeing, and if not now, it will I think eventually happen, is that the ability to make that compromise to be that sort of lukewarm Republican is kind of going away. The gap is simply too wide to span. And so to me, look, like I'm not, uh, let, let's say a personal fan of Greg Abbott, but I think that he came to a, a realization that he would no longer be in any form of power at all if he acquiesced to to Washington. And essentially from Washington's perspective, they've created this kind of principal agent problem, you know, where their middle managers, their governors, if they do what they want, 
they will no longer be middle managers or governors. They'll be yeah. replaced. So all of a sudden, well, you know, it doesn't matter if, you know, I, I get at least some kind of good boy points for going along with the regime if I have no power at all. Because again, these people, these elite people are incredibly ambitious. You know, they are climbers. And if they're completely kicked off the ladder, all of a sudden, that's an opportunity, right? We've created a split within the elite. And look, like I'm a, I'm a firm elitist, right? I'm a believer in elite theory. And so I don't think we're ever going to get away from the kind of machinations of an elite class. But something we can hope for is essentially a system in which us and our people are an important block. We are patrons up to be grabbed. And I think that that's kind of what you can hope for, especially in a system in which, you know, there's a splinter faction in the elite that needs friends, to be brutally honest about it. There's uh, there was a moment uh, last week when uh, a friend of both your and mine, uh, Black Horse, who's been on the show, and he's a very smart guy. I'm I'm not I'm not trying to bag on here, but I just I it, it was a very relevant conversation, and so I want to bring it up here. Yeah, I said, oh, you know, you 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 this is not going to get solved at the state level, so you, or rather, this is not going to get solved at the national level, so you have to take the state action no matter what. And he says, well, unfortunately, it doesn't really matter if Greg Abbott takes the action because. Uh, this is this is a border enforcement issue. So either all of the states get involved or or none of them do because there's always going to be around. And I heard this from a lot of people like, well, they'll just fly people around or they'll bring them in by boats or they'll come in from another state. I'm like, no, you don't understand the situation. Like they're never going to fix this issue. There is no federal fix for this issue because they don't want it to be fixed. And so what you need is to play the man, not the ball. Like you don't need to fix the issue of immigration. You do. It's critical. But you can't fix the issue of immigration until you have elites, elites that are absolutely forced back against the wall to take action about it. And so the interesting part is not like what legislation you pass through Congress to enforce the border. There's already tons of legislation that enforces the border. They don't care. They just don't do it. What you need is compliance of the governors. And the way you get that is to put them in a situation where they can only be on your side and still retain power. Like you were saying, Caesar, you know, he takes the he takes. Uh, the populari path and he he crosses the rubicon not because he you know necessarily always believed in those things ideologically at his core but because these were the only path to power right you know, if he doesn't cross the rubicon he goes to jail there's nothing left for him because the senate will not allow him to climb any any higher he will, will not allow him to climb any higher they will not allow him to achieve what he wants unless he goes ahead and takes action on behalf of people that he otherwise might not have supported and the same is true here. You have to put these elites in situations where they can only benefit by serving your interests. Tie them directly and specifically to you. Don't play the process. Don't play the game of trying to get things passed. That's small ball. Win the people. Win them over. Secure that high-level elite uh, patronage from them. That's really the key. And I think you're right that until... The right gains the ability to tie these elites directly to both your your values and your um, and your priorities, but also your status hierarchies. You'll continue to see them defect, defect, defect because they you know because their their interests are lie really at the end of the day with the left with the, the progressive power structure. And so you have to create a situation where instead the only way that they wield power is by joining your side. 
Well, and this is something that the left has actually got quite, quite good at, you know, is that I think that what they do a good job of is either directly primarying or threatening to primary kind of DNC strongholds, you know, to get people who are maybe getting a little bit comfortable to kind of move to a more extreme position. And I know that obviously, you know, Abbott's been in power for quite a while, but he was recently, there was kind of a challenger to his right, Don, Don Huffines or something. I can't remember his name. The point is he was a more extreme Republican and he didn't end up winning. But I think the combination of seeing a challenger to his right, competition from DeSantis to be the kind of like the basedest, coolest Republican governor, and then also to be blunt about it, some less than flattering census data for the Republican Party in Texas. And I think that's sort of that realization that, oh, if I'm going to keep my hand on the wheel, I need to play the game. You know, I can no longer kind of sit back and let it coast. And especially when forces not aligned as much to the regime get complacent, they get taken out in an instant. I mean, that's what happened to the to the Republican Party in, in my home, home state of Virginia, right? Is that they got very, very lazy and got completely obliterated. Now, you know, obviously Youngkin has done some work to combat that. But I think that if we're looking for, well, how do we create an opportunity for, uh, you know, for our policies to be represented, it's essentially put pressure to the right of these Republicans. Because look, I'm not saying they're good people. I'm not saying they're moral people, far from it. But they are self-interested. And the process of making them interested in your self-interest is to basically put pressure on them. And I think that, you know, even if these kind of primary attempts are not successful they certainly send a signal to, uh, uh, you know, these kind of ordinarily spineless politicians. So I think we, we've probably explained social and emotional pa patronage well enough. I do want to bring up a example in the news that's out today of very traditional patronage, uh, which was that of Ilhan Omar. You got uh, footage uh, of her speaking at an event and she says very clearly in this uh, in this event, in this footage, that her first priority is Somalia. That, that, that's, you know, her her nation of birth is is her first priority and that she puts that above the United States. Her second priority is Islam being a Muslim. That's that's really the Muslim community is is her next. And so all of these things are far more important to her and she's willing to subordinate any other interest to this and i think a lot of a lot of conservatives were amazed that she would say that kind of thing out loud but i think that's just a, a indication of you're kind of in that late imperial moment where it's very clear that a large amount of people have come in from other cultures other areas you you have left those borders open you have allowed mass immigration legal and illegal and that has changed the dynamic inside your country. And there's a, a deep interest in this. And these people are willing to, because they're allowed to do it, you know, the left can say these things. I'm here for Somalia. That's my job. That you guys elect me. I do the things you want me to do. She's not going to lose. You know, she's not going to lose any position inside the party. She's not going to lose her status. And she's certainly not going to lose her seat because she's telling the people who vote for her exactly what they want to hear. But I think it was very rough for a lot of a lot of Americans who may not be aware of this particular relationship uh, that is very common on the left uh, to see that kind of so explicitly stated in front of everyone. Well, well, definitely. And I think that, 
you know, this is a particularly egregious example. We've seen it with other nations as well, right? It's, it seems it would beggar belief considering how many Ukrainians work in the state department, that that doesn't have some sort of bearing on our relation to the nation of Ukraine, right? Other nations obviously have sort of a similar dynamic set up, but that is a very, I like your phrase kind of late empire, right? Where all these kind of ethnic squabbles from different corners of, you know, the GAE are, are sort of being brought home to roost. You know, Canada has had this as well, you know, where they've had, <laughs> I believe that the Indian government allegedly assassinated a Sikh radical on Canadian soil. And this was just seen as sort of a normal occurrence, right? That as the, you know, these, these populations come here, they bring their, their baggage with them. Obviously this has been going on for hundreds of years. Similar things happened obviously in the civil war with different European groups. Uh, but I think that as that becomes an ever more uh, significant portion of the American population, that trend will continue. Yeah, it was interesting. I was, yeah, I was reading uh, the Clash of Civilizations, uh, and uh, that book's written in 1995 by Samuel Huntington, and he specifically talks about kind of the critical nature of diasporas inside of these these kind of large imperial battles and the role that they play. His his example, because again, it was written back in 1995 was a kind of an Armenian confrontation and the way that the Armenians uh, received large amounts of support from the American government, uh, you know, to the, to the level where it was called the, you know, it was called the, uh, uh, the Israel of, of the Balkans or something, you know, because, uh, because of the level of uh, aid they were receiving and like how common it is once you kind of have this hegemonic status uh, to, to have uh, basically like a, a greater Somalia or a greater uh, Armenia that's that's going to uh, compel politicians to take particular sides in foreign conflicts that otherwise have no no you know kind of interest in an in American uh, no American interest and so it's just interesting to see that that effect has only intensified and only become far more blatant. I've seen it. I've been in scenarios uh, where you know uh, I was working for a politician and uh, they they would just kind of you know, you would hear them talking about, you know, he's a Greek politician and no one cares about Cyprus. Like you never say this in front of any other group, but when he's in front of his like Greek fundraisers, all of a sudden the issue of Cyprus is like first and, and foremost. And he's talking about how critical this is to like his entire existence as a politician. And so there's nothing new about this. This has existed inside, you know, every nation, especially as they grow to the size of an empire. Uh, it's just getting it's incredibly pronounced. And, and it, it was it was just interesting that as we talk about patronage, that was very shocking to a, a, a lot of people who otherwise really shouldn't be shocked because this is kind of exactly what has been warned about by pretty much everyone, every paleocon for a very long time. And it's simply those chickens coming home to roost. No, certainly. And it's interesting because, you know, when you when you mention that, the, the example I always think of is. There, there's, and there, this was kind of a, a trope in, you know, spy movies all through the eighties, right. Is, is the kind of Irish diaspora on the American Northeast coast, you know, running guns to the IRA, you know, and that's a, that's a kind of a, a non-controversial example, right. Cause that's sort of out of, you know, everyone's kind of imagination currently, but again, that is just sort of a, a fact of ethnic diasporas. And as we get, uh, as we pick up more and more of them, we sort of become entangled in more and more of these, uh, these foreign conflicts.
All right, guys. Well, we're going to go ahead and pivot over to the uh, questions of the people. But before we do so, Jay, where can people find this essay and all your other great work? Yeah, sure. So you can find my podcast on The Jay Burden Show. That name everywhere, Apple, Spotify, YouTube, anywhere you want to listen to it. I've got Andrew Isker on tonight to talk about a series of, of Christian issues. But recently I've talked to Ed Dutton. I've talked to Morgoth. A black horse, you know, as mentioned earlier. So if, if there's anyone in there that you're interested in, you could check out my podcast. That's my primary work. But also the Jay Burden show is on Substack. I post an essay there once or twice a week. Also, if you want to pay for my premium, you get a few essays. I don't paywall almost any of them, but you also get access to free podcasts. So that's a good way to support the show. And those are my two main links. Excellent. All right, guys, let's go ahead and look at your questions. Creeper Weirdo says, is this a stream about Reddit? Sir, all of my streams are in some way uh, a, a uh, slapping Reddit around. That's like, yeah, we, we could have basically called this like uh, like like a upvote patronage. You know, it right. would have been essentially the same idea. Yeah, is, it car is it karma you get on Reddit? Is that I, I believe so. Yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah. This is yeah. This is just the, the system of karma patronage. Yeah. Trickle down wokeism. Yep. Absolutely. Except this is real. You know, <laughs> that one actually happens. Uh, let's see. Uh, Life of Brian says, I went back in time and an old elite scolded me for the way I held my teacup. I laughed with joy and thanked her for not castrating my child. She was very confused. Uh, yes, uh, it, it, it is funny how terrible uh, we, we tend to portray elites of just a few generations ago uh, when considering uh, what we are currently heavily unleashed upon the world. Well, certainly. And that shows you how much healthier it is, right? To have a society where people are, are kind of competing over minute points of etiquette, which admittedly is kind of silly, but given the alternative is like effectively like large scale human sacrifice and castration. It's like, okay, well, I think that's a trade I'm willing to make. It's really amazing. The horrors that you can unleash by promising people to remove parts of human nature. Like, oh, well, we'll get rid of, you know, someone uh, telling you're a bad person because of your musical taste or because you don't hold your teacup correctly or because you didn't wear your suit to church. And all it will cost you is the testicles of your children, right? <laughs> like that seems to be oh, um, right. the horrific deal that has been made. And it is, it is kind of like social lysenkoism, you know, where it's like, well, we have this ideology and, and no matter the consequences, we will put it into action. You know, and it's sort of just like, well, okay, like, I guess maybe now you don't get made fun of at school for playing D&D &D on the weekends. But, you know, was it worth the cost of, you know, just everything, you know, all the kind of issues we both talk about. And uh, apparently some people consider that a, that a good trade. Truly amazing. Uh, Life of Brian says, uh, scholastic meritocracy is a big part of it. Uh, midwit scholastics were easily swayed that counter signaling then conventional wisdom signaled intellect. Yeah, that's absolutely true. When you have, especially with the overproduction of elites, again, uh, turning universities and guys, by the way, this is a, this is an entire chapter in the total state. So, uh, you know, you can find a link to pre-order that book. I'll go ahead and drop it in the description of the video. If you'd like to pre-order my book, but I, I, an entire chapter of the total state is dedicated to kind of the disaster that was, uh, turning uh, colleges, the university system into the mechanism by which people ascend uh, the social status hierarchy, where the way we, we crown elites and the elite overproduction that many people have talked about, myself included, 
you just have to find all of these different ways to to kind of show your status and uh when you're not really getting anything from of value out of your university degree the best thing you can do is is that desire to counter signal everyone uh kind of down the ladder uh through again your jargon your your scholastic meritocracy as you point out life brian so great point well, and one thing, sorry, I, I, I realized I should have brought, I actually should have written about this in the article. This would have been a great point that I've only now thought about. But this is sort of the the shell game that the regime played with Occupy Wall Street, right? It is people who are angry about, you know, oh, the regime is treating me unfairly. And essentially the offer they were given is, well, the real reason that you're, you don't have what you want is uh, is secret racists, you know, and you can, instead of having a good life, you can essentially you know, devote that instinct to climbing this sort of like completely made up social ladder. And it does sort of seem like, let's be honest, a lot of those people were those kind of like Midwest scholastic types, you know, who'd bought the promise of college and it hadn't panned out. And so it was sort of kind of an alternate way for them to, to kind of experience uh, like an increase in, in, I wouldn't say living standard, but increase in social standard, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah. No, nothing, there's nothing more spiteful than the uh, than the guy who was promised greatness and instead uh, ended up with a hundred thousand dollars and a useless degree. Uh, Trey Fifty Daniel says people tend to act on their incentives, create the proper incentives for the Republican elite, and they will act accordingly. That's absolutely true. The only problem I think for a lot of people on the right is they don't know how to create those incentives anymore. They don't understand because again, they don't get that link they don't get the patronage link they don't get the you know the, the the way that this reciprocal relationship works they don't understand how to create those bonds and so as i pointed out one of the the faults a lot of people play is they will say well i want them to enact policies for me and it's like okay but they don't have the ability to do that and they don't have the incentive to do that so what can you do well i can tie it very directly to their ability to just hold office as a governor somewhere right and like so so you 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 need to focus it. You can't. It's the, there's a reason that the incumbency rate of of you know Congress is so high, and that none of them are held accountable. You know those things are interlinked. As where when you have an executive, there's a far more direct and one to one relationship between power and accountability. Uh, and this is why uh, you know the the ability to leverage Abbott is so much more powerful than trying to wrangle every single uh, Republican senator or congressman. Uh, Fuggo says, it, it is uh, leftists claiming to be evil because of racism sanctimonious? Uh, sorry, that one's a little difficult there. Uh, evil because of racism sanctimonious. Uh, I guess um, they're, they're obviously finding a shared moral vision. They need to create an enemy and they need to differentiate themselves between uh, you know, uh, b- between the evil racists, those that are below them in status and are therefore less holy than them, uh, and, and themselves elevate themselves. So, in a way, yes, that that's that's definitely part of it, which is another reason why it's so important to just not argue over whether or not you're racist. Uh, they're they're just doing it in bad faith when you try to challenge that. And, oh, you're the real racist. You're just confirming their frame that that's the most important thing the thing that they define, the thing, the term they have control of, you're reinforcing that. And so that's why it's always a mistake to play the play the game inside their moral frame. You don't need to, you don't need to show yourself to be the best one in the current moral hierarchy. You need to show that the current moral hierarchy is corrupt. And that that's the mentality shift that you need from the right. 
And that's why conceptualizing this as a religious war or war of belief is so essential, right? Like you don't, you don't, you know, politely sit down with the Saracen and say, well, I'm not really a, you know, I'm not really a, uh, you know, a heathen invader. You know, you basically, that's a conflict, you know, and, and you don't necessarily enter this as this is a, like you said, like a good faith accusation. You know, it is simply just a, a ritual denunciation, like calling someone a heretic. Uh, Simplar says, it's very curious in Manhattan when a current thing happens and the New York Times hasn't issued uh, a feels, the progressives here wander around clueless, worried about having an opinion that might be wrong next Thursday. That's exactly right. And there's that dynamic is is very real. That when there there has been no pronouncement on high, you know that your entire social status, especially in a place like New York, is is uh, around uh, you know these kind of pronouncements. You need to know what's right so you can start telling everybody. But there's this lag time sometimes between the official organs uh, and the and you know w- uh, what we should believe. This is actually what probably gives the upper class that that moment, right, where they can set the tone. And so, uh, you know, that that's not uh, that's not so much a, a flaw in the system as a feature. However, uh, yeah, it, it is funny to see when when the left is is grasping around uh, between between lag time transmission updates of the NPC uh, frame, firmware. Like, what should we believe now? Currently, we don't know. Uh, it's it's all very confusing. Uh, John Carter says the civil war was about destroying decentralized patronage networks and stealing the plebeians for systems, which provide no long-term benefit to them. Civil war is about a lot of things, but that is absolutely one of them. Uh, you know, there, there are a lot of divides, uh, in the United States. There was always a tension between urban and rural, the merchant and the farmer, uh, the North and the South. Uh, this was, this was always a, a dynamic and sometimes it involved slavery and sometimes it didn't, but that's why boiling the civil war down to slavery is very stupid. It, it, it's certainly an important factor, but it is, is not the only factor and ignoring the other critical ones is, is always foolish. Uh, and one of the things that the civil war most absolutely did, uh, was kind of get rid of the idea that individual states really set uh, their own culture and their own agenda and could could operate independently. Uh, once you can no longer secede, uh, you no longer have the opportunity to ignore uh, kind of kind of federal mandates. The Tenth Amendment dies. Uh, federalism kind of dies uh, due to that. Uh, though we do we do still have some of those remnants, uh, and it is nice that that uh, you know guys like Greg Abbott can still uh, flex some of that muscle uh, because we still kind of reflexively feel that we have that even if. In practice, it hasn't been shown up until perhaps Abbott for a very long time. Well, and I think that, you know, just to be to be very brief, if you're looking for kind of a fictionalized depiction of both what John Carter is referring to and, you know, this sort of direct system of patronage, uh, the classic movie Gangs of New York is a great example. You know, it's about the birth of certain ethnic patronage networks in America, right. effectively. Uh, and so if you want to see a, a movie version of my article, that's a pretty good good place to start. Yeah, when they're just import, you know, the Irish are getting off of the boat and immediately going on to the, you know, getting a uniform and going directly into the Civil War, just going right down the river. Yeah, uh, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a great scene. All right, uh, Cliff Jade, it says, even in Singapore, people will adopt Americanisms, progressivism, in order to appear more upper class and elite. Liberalism swallows us all. Yeah, you're not the only person to say that. Uh, we've both been on Alex Kashuta's show. And when I've spoken with her, you know, she said, 
Well, in Romania, we have this, you know, the, the girls who want to sound like they're elite start talking about abortion law in Alabama, right? They, they, as if they have any clue, as if they could find it on a map, as if they've inter ever interacted with this, as if it has any impact on them. But they still know that like their status comes from alliance with the GAE. And so they go ahead and kind of regurgitate those concerns, even though it has nothing to do with what's happening in Romania or their lives. Uh, because and that that's really how you know you have a global empire is because everyone in the world who wants to have a, a certain level of status uh, kind of changes the way they speak to align themselves with that. Though I think that is changing. Uh, I, I think that will continue to change as America's global presence or, or hegemony uh, kind of wanes. Uh, but that is certainly a, a marker of kind of of how this uh, patronage works even beyond the borders of the United States. Well, and and you see the you see this because anytime there's sort of a regime approved presidential candidate, this same article comes out which says, "I'll have you know, seventy percent of Europeans, you know, listed out by country supports regime candidate." You know, and you sort of see that it's sort of a self reinforcing thing. Like right. it, recently, this article was written about Nikki Haley, but if you look back four years or four years before that, it's a recurring article. You'll find it again. Absolutely. All right, guys. Well, we're going to go ahead and wrap this up, but thank you guys so much for coming by. Thank you again to Jay Burden for coming on. Make sure to go check out his Substack and his show. It's really great. And of course, if this is your first time on my channel, please make sure that you go ahead and subscribe. Make sure you turn on those notifications so that you catch these shows when they go live. And if you'd like to get these broadcasts as podcasts, make sure that you subscribe to the Oren McIntyre Show on your favorite podcast platform. When you do that, please leave a rating or review. It really helps with the algorithm, guys. Thank you once again for watching. And as always, I'll talk to you next time.